Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hello, and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. I'm Peter Ayers. Today, my guest is one of Australia's foremost choral conductors, Brett Waymark. Since 2003, Brett has conducted the Sydney Philharmonia Choirs throughout Australia and internationally. He's also conducted many symphony orchestras and productions for WAPA, Pacific Opera and Oz Opera. He's performed with Opera Australia, Pinchcott Opera, Australian Chamber Orchestra, The Song Company and Musica Viva. Brett is passionate about singing and the role that music plays in both the individual's well-being and the overall health and vitality of a community's culture. Music can transform lives and should be accessible to all. In a couple of days, Brett Waymark will conduct Verdi's Requiem at the Sydney Opera House. He joins stages to discuss this glorious piece of music and his own journey through making music. I'll try and do one for you at some point. Now that I'm drawn attention to it, I probably won't do it at all. You probably won't do it at all. There you go. No, no, no. no. Um, Brett Waymark, uh, lovely to have you as a guest on stages. Pleasure to be here. You've just finished a big concert for the Philharmonia Choirs. We have. Quite unusual repertoire for us, actually. But repertoire I'm very passionate about because um, Broadway repertoire, particularly of the Golden Age, which is, what, 19... I suppose from from Oklahoma, really. Oklahoma onwards to about Hello Dolly. I suppose until rock operas, hair and cabaret is sometimes considered the end of that period as well. But they were big orchestras, you know, big lush string sections. You often had... Huge singing chorus, like it was the stage where you had a singing chorus, you had a dancing chorus. It was for large, to a large extent, also before microphones. So the singers themselves had to produce a certain type of quasi operatic or, or Ethel Merman esque type sound. So there's something about it that lends itself very nicely to the Sydney Philharmonia choirs in terms of it's grand, it's symphonic, uh, and it's just, it's really well written music. You know, that influx of talent that came to New York from Europe but with a you know all of that operatic classical operetta yeah Mm -hmm. uh, music and then it it collided with jazz and the depression and and reviews became music theatre and you know extraordinary extraordinary melting pot yeah 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 a potpourri of everything. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, have you seen that show, Schmigadoon? I haven't. Look, yes, we have many debates about Schmig. Yeah. Are you yes. a fan? Or? Look, I think it should go further, really. That's my dog, That's Ralph. That's, Hello, Ralph. Yes, okay. Sorry about these things. Yes, he's very vocal. He's very vocal. <laughs> well-trained. 
and hopefully he'll stop barking in a minute otherwise we'll just have to redo this entire <laughs> podcast um yeah look i like schmigadoon i just always wanted to go further yeah um in a sense and i i just but you know the great thing is we've captured that particular generation of what's on broadway because mm. some of the people in that are just truly extraordinary mm. and if you don't get to broadway you won't actually see them doing strutting their stuff in many ways mm-hmm. no it is quite, quite clever the i i like spotting the easter eggs within yeah. those wonderful pastiche songs that, yeah. they, that are written exactly for. Yeah. indeed yeah sweeney todd had a certain you know uh, what's the word Treatment through the mangler, I should think. Remember manglers? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry, but Barry, Barry Humphreys. Barry Remember Humphreys manglers? manglers? Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And also, uh, my mother had a washing machine that had rollers, which were like manglers, and they, yeah. you had to. That was how you rinsed your clothes Absolutely. before you hung them out. Yeah. Uh, when, uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> We're both showing well, our certain, non-ages going certain on. Certain generation. Moving yes, on. Yes. Yes. Now, Britt, do you have a favourite sound? Oh, a favourite sound. Well, actually. I've never really thought about it, but that sound of an orchestra tuning mm. is possibly the most delightful thing in the world. Mm. Um, it's great when I'm in an audience because it's terribly exciting. Uh, most of the time when I'm working, though, it's a, it's a sense of excitement tinged with just ever so slightly a small amount of fear and intrepidation because it's often you know the first time we meet the orchestra for a, a rehearsal or indeed I'm standing in the wings I'm um, thinking, oh, God, we really are going to do this, are we? Okay, well, here it goes. Um, so, But there is something about the sound of an orchestra tuning up. And, you know, I, I don't know if I can remember the very first time I heard it, but there is something magical about it, I think, in many ways. Yeah. Your whole career, um, whole life, I dare say, is, <coughs> is about music mm-hmm. and Ralph. And, and Ralph. <laughs> don't mention it. Don't mention the don't other word. No, no, no. <laughs> yes. and, and singing. Uh, why do you believe that, that, that music is such an essential... Uh, tonic for society yeah look well you know this is this is one of my bugbears i suppose i don't there's no i haven't done particularly you know huge amounts of research into this but if you watch a young child what are the two things they tend to do they dance they move their bodies and the other thing they tend to do is they tend to sing like quite naturally without any sort of instruction or training or anything like that we know now that the huge effect that the mother's voice particularly the singing voice has on the baby in the womb and even to the point of you know cognitive function starts to happen in the womb largely due to the pitch of the the mother's voice so like we start to differentiate the difference between listening and hearing in the womb because we actually start to cotton on to the mother's voice and that's what actually starts to give our ears a certain sense of differentiation but you know when we go to school uh the two things that tend to be you know, driven out of us pretty quickly are sit still and shut up. Um, so I think for a lot of people, the natural development of their voice is is stifled right from the minute that they hit school because they are told to be quiet. Mm. Um, and then, you know, when they use their voice, they're often told to use it in a very controlled and, you know, highly, um, what's the word, you know, this is what's socially acceptable in a sense. But actually for a voice to develop, you've got to make all sorts of weird and wacky sounds. So, you know, firstly, there's that element that I think we were born to sing. I really do. And some of the, a lot of the research is now around that we probably sang a lot earlier than we spoke in many ways, particularly if we had to communicate across vast distances. But then um, the other thing is, look, I'm totally convinced, and it's mostly through my own experience, I think, my really good friends now are the, the friends that I sang with, yeah. you know, because there is something just incredibly Communal. bonding. Yeah. yeah, with that, you know, those are the people who we all went over the, 
the metaphorical, you know, edge for, uh, either in performances or in recordings, or we, we were having the same sort of experience as learning from our singing. T- I'm so sorry about Ralph, I really am. Um, <laughs> Dear listener. <laughs> yes, you see, he actually sang and moved, and let's, he's the prototype, actually, of yeah. everything. But anyway, um, but that's the thing. So, you know, if there's anything we can do at the Philharmonia to sort of recapture that sense of it's your birthright to be able to sing. And, the, and you know, that's sing at a variety of levels. You know, we have the chamber singers and our youth choir, Vox, who sing at the most incredibly high standards. The symphony chorus, which are larger, but sing at just exactly the same standard who sang in the Broadway show on the weekend. And then festival chorus, which, you know, is, is there for people who are a bit more time poor, who might not have the same skills that the other people have. Yeah. Um, but it should be available to everyone. Yeah. Um, and I'm, so I'm terribly passionate about that. Um, there is a there is a primal urge to to make absolutely, sound absolutely absolutely and as a child there's even I mean that's the funny thing even within um, singing pedagogy there is a thing called the, the the primal sound and actor training has a, a similar sort of thing as well there, there, that there is deep down something inside us like, which is only activated when we absolutely have to you know we see somebody being attacked across the road and we yeah. go into that mode yeah. um, but that's essentially what it is I remember you know opera singers often talk about opera singing is just happy shouting you know or safe shouting in a funny sort of way and it is true to a large extent so i mean the fact that i feel singing is is everyone's right um as is music i don't consider it a luxury i think it's a right but actually also if you're going to enjoy music the right to have actually been taught some sort of rudimentary music education in school is terribly important because it is the sort of thing that you might come to later on in life when you actually have time to indulge a, a passion or two. Yeah. Um, but if you haven't had some sort of positive experience or some sort of uh, tuition into it, um, you will find it harder later on. Um, so, somebody told me once, and I must investigate this, that apparently in our constitution... There is that, that that in all schools uh, must be taught sport and music. Mm, They're mm. the compulsory subjects. Yeah, exactly, and I mean, was that case until about the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties? I think, and when, and then, you know, particularly in primary school teaching, what was considered a very, you know, important part of the curriculum was scuttled down to maybe one or two hours of tuition, actually within the course itself, for people who were training to be teachers. But you know. The thing that I remember from school, particularly from kindergarten at Neutral Bay Public School with Mrs. English, is every morning we'd sit down and she would turn around and play the... Actually, I don't know if she played the piano, maybe it was Mrs. McInnelly who played the, the piano. But we'd sit and sing. And I still remember the very first song that we ever sang there. And, you know, those are the things which are etched in my memories, probably in the same way that, you know, people remember sporting triumphs from school, yeah. but they don't actually remember really the algebra lesson on... Monday at 3.15 or whenever it was. Exactly. That's why I say about the school play too. People carry that memory through exactly. a lifetime. You know, that, exactly. that, that time they played Maria or Mabel. Yeah. Or... And not everyone has to go off and become a professional actor because no. they've had that no. experience. But by golly, they're more inclined to probably go off and buy a ticket to the mm. Sydney Theatre Company mm. because they've had that experience at school. It's not an unknown thing. And this is what absolutely gets me about education. We shouldn't be teaching the structural development of a Kylie Minogue song because let's face it that's pretty accessible Um, what we have to do is be opening the box that otherwise wouldn't be opened had we had we not been introduced to it somehow so you know Shakespeare is a classic example if we hadn't all had to go through that Shakespearean you know 
baptism of fire, you know, none of us would appreciate it. And again, some of it, would, some of us go on to find it the most important stuff that we know, and others just go, oh, I just can't stand Shakespeare. I've never really understood it. Yeah. But at least you've been exposed yeah, to it. Exactly. It's not an unknown quantity. Mm. What was that first song that you learned? It was Over the Rainbow, which is a yeah. sad indictment, isn't it, really? We're all saying that. But it had a fantastic <laughs> octave leap, so I'm uh, well, the yeah, see, they, they, so they, It was very good for my octave leaps. Yeah, yeah. But as kids, uh, the first music that they're exposed to is often nursery rhymes. Mm. Do kids still learn nursery rhymes? I mean, I'm not sure. I find that's a thing of the past. You quote I'm not sure. Ralph was not particularly good on nursery rhymes. He was good on Primal Scream, let me tell you, but he wasn't <laughs> terribly good on So I'm not sure. But, I mean, again, nursery rhymes are interesting as well in a politically correct age, you know. Um, yeah. Most... <laughs> Some of the things we teach kids very early on have a certain, well, somewhat dubious political nature to them. But, you know, kids can cope with that sort of thing up to a point, I should imagine. Mm -hmm. That's probably not the point of this podcast, is it? Oh, no, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll see where it goes. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the genre of music that you listen to 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 unwind? Uh, Look, probably jazz, mostly. I'm not a... Look, when I was in my 20s, I had a very pathetic jazz um, sort of act with a very good friend of mine, Sophie. And we used to go around to what was then actually quite hearty jazz scene in Sydney. There was Soup Plus and various things like that. And I remember going and doing a... Well, I remember two auditions. One, I think it was for Soup Plus or something like that. And, um, you know, obviously I was banging the piano. And he said, well, maybe you should try singing or something like that. And maybe, you know, you're a better singer than you are a pianist. But the other one we did down at... Darling, no, um, what used to be Pier One, and we got on top, and she used to do Making Whoopi, and she'd get on top of the piano, and then we realised that the piano had been moved due to some water damage or something like that, and they hadn't reattached the the legs, so actually the entire piano just fell over during the course of the audition. So it was probably, there was probably fate telling me that I wasn't going to be a jazz pianist. But anything where my brain is not cognitively engaged with it, because as a... As a conductor, you spend most of your time either sitting at a table like this in silence, reading the score and hearing it in your head, or you're at a piano analysing it, or you're rehearsing it. And again, if I'm if I'm doing the Verdi Requiem, which we are next week, I can't really listen to a recording because, you know, the, the tempi has to be so firmly set in your head. And you don't want to get to a week out from hearing the orchestra for the first time and going, oh, God. I've had it wrong all this time. I really should have gone at that tempo or I should have done what Toscanini did in that. Fine, you know, two years out when you're just knowing that you're going to be conducting it or something like that or we, and you listen to a lot of recordings. But once you get up to the point, you're not really listening to recordings. And actually, at the moment's interesting as well because we're at that point where we're really putting the final touches on the 24 season, which, you know, goes to budget and everything has to be prepared and music has to be found and all that sort of stuff. So if I'm listening to music, I'm listening to it in a very particular way, which is, will an audience enjoy this piece? Um, do we have the forces to pull it off? Will it fit within the budget for this particular program? So it is work up to a large extent. Um, and even last week when the London Symphony Orchestra were here, we had, I think, the following morning, the first rehearsal with the soloist for the Broadway show. And it was a real tussle, I thought. Do I do it? Do I not? Do I do it? And of course I went, because let's face it, it's the Simon Rattle and the yeah. LSO. And it was, it was bloody brilliant. Yeah, you yeah. Know? But but I do have to think, do I need to hear a piece of music when I've got all of this other stuff inside my head? Yeah. Um, and I imagine it might be the same for somebody doing a play in a sense. You know, Can you really go off and watch somebody else's work when you're in the middle of a eight-show-a-week run of Hamlet? Who knows? Mm. 
So silence is a very important part of your day. Silence is a fairly important part of my day. Um, and, you know, to get to sleep at night, I often listen to a lot of spoken books and things like that. I don't find music relaxing necessarily. Um, having said that, uh, music theatre, <laughs> oddly enough, is great for getting you motivated to get out of the house. Um, not to get away from the music theatre, but it's sort of, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, after you've been doing it, I, I often talk to people about flicking the switch. Um, Conducting is actually a rather solitary um, profession. And at the same time, even when you're on the podium, it's rather solitary. Yes, you're surrounded by all these musicians, but they're all colleagues within themselves. And we're colleagues as well. But And, and leadership styles have very much changed in that. You know, it's no longer you know, carry on demanding everything out the front. It's, it's, you know, you're aware that they only play as well as they will play for you based on the relationship that you actually have, you know, the invisible, invisible tentacles that come out of the yeah. conductor um, to the players. But at the same time, we're not, we're not necessarily all just going off to the pub and going, oh, yes, I conducted that bar really badly or something like that. They rely on me on f- for a certain thing and I rely on them. So um, you, you have to go from that solitary brain to actually a bit of a showman sometimes, particularly chorus mastering, which is, you know, the choruses I work with are all amateur choruses. So if it's not enjoyable, they don't come back the following week. You know, it has it, it has to be instructive. It has to be worth their while to give up, you know, three hours on a Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I mean, this weekend with the Verdi Requiem Choir, they'll rehearse all day Saturday and a good smattering of Sunday, which is Mother's Day. You know, if you don't make it fun they won't come back you know so, and and that's the point of joining a choir as well it's a hobby for them but it's a it's a life for me it's my it's my it's my profession yeah so it's quite a different sort of thing i think but anyway having said that flipping this is a long shaggy <laughs> you think ralph is shaggy this is very shaggy dog um i often use music theater to flip the switch yeah. and to go from that solitary introvert to, to something else and Choju is great for that I have oh, to say absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. You can very much any, so. any world yeah um, uh, and be rejuvenated so, so the choirs that you work with some mm-hmm. of them are, are enormous yes they are yeah. huge we talk I mean look you know how many Marla, people well Marla Rate that we'll be doing on the June long weekend and somebody reminded me why, why I thought Marla Rate was a good idea um That'll be a, you know nearly a thousand people on stage once you add the Sydney Youth Orchestra and you know eight hundred singers and a hundred piece children's choir, um, and they're all largely people who've come together for the one day. You know, so they've met each other that Saturday morning and they'll perform on Sunday afternoon. Uh, so, so, so the logistics, yeah. of that is it must be extraordinary. Yeah, look, l- luckily, luckily, I've got an incredible team in the office who do all of that legwork, but. You know, we prepare the score and we send out the teaching. We get professional singers in to sing all the parts. We send that out about a year out in advance. And some people do that. I mean, at this stage, we've still got a couple of people joining us and they've got four weeks to learn mile rate. So good luck. But as, I've, as I keep saying, though, the hard part is learning it by yourself. Once you're in the room with everybody else, it's actually a lot easier. And that's the great thing about choirs. So say you've got a big choir. And you've got somebody who's got a fantastic voice over there. You've got a really good musician with a smallish voice over there. You've got somebody who can't read music to save themselves over there, but they've got a sort of okay voice. Somehow, within a group of 100-odd altos or so, that all evens out a great deal. And so it's that thing of, without saying it, one person's sort of vocally giving another person a leg up and another one's giving another one a leg up. And, 
you know, all of a sudden you get this incredible sound, which you could not get if you only had two or three of them, but get a hundred of them together, everything evens out. And, you know, I often say to the choirs, in terms of blend, you know, if you feel that you're one of the reticent singers, sing up a little bit more. If you feel you're a bit of a blower, you know, come down, you know, meet each other halfway and just see if if that can work. And sometimes you get a much better sound, sometimes it doesn't work at all. Um, But that sort of thing, it, it is actually extraordinary teamwork without it actually ever being said, you know, we should work as a team. You know, it's amazing. But yes, some of the choirs I work with are extremely large. And you must have built uh, um, quite a magnificent skill set over many years, uh, just in, in, in management, um, tricks to keep their attention. I mean, if you're working yeah. with one section, the altos, um, are the, the tenors behaving? Uh, yeah. All that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. That's where you hope your study has been thorough enough that you can stand in the room and hear all the parts at the same time. So you don't have to too often have a group sitting there by themselves. And oddly enough, going back to when I first started, when I seriously was not very good at this job, um, and Mutz Nielsen, who was the then music director of Sydney Philharmonia Choirs and my my teacher, I suppose, um, I thought I was doing a brilliant job on a new Australian work that we'd commissioned, which was going to open the, the concert, and he'd given it to me to conduct, which was a huge honour. And, um, you know, being a bit of a young upstart, I went, I'm going to get this right. God damn it. And he said to me, you do realise you just spent 20 minutes with the autos alone. Um, so rehearsal management is something you learn yeah. uh, in the case. But it is it is very much the spinning plates on top of the what are yeah. you, you know, poles type things. You've got to keep the plates spinning, I think. An economy of time as well. You don't want to mm. waste anyone's time. Yeah. Be Again, it is very much... And it's, look, it's also trusting the choir. And I probably still, even after all of these years, don't do that nearly enough. And understand that, you know, people learn at different rates and and they also learn differently. You know, some people turn up to the first rehearsal and they've taken their score home, they've learnt every single note and that's fine. Others do actually need to learn it in the room, yeah. you know, and they have to learn it with the, all the parts around them. They never feel quite confident until they've got that. Some people really like singing in a mixed formation where, you know, you'll often just not keep all the altos together and not all the sprites and you'll mix it all up and some people love that. I don't I particularly love that sound. Other people just go, oh God, tell me he's not going to do that because they feel incredibly insecure not being able to hear their part. So I think that's the thing. Over the period of time, I'm a little bit better at trusting the choir. But again, it's a very difficult thing with choirs as well. Do you let a couple of mistakes go with the view of they'll fix themselves up? Or do you go, if I don't fix that up now, I know I'll be fixing that up two minutes before we walk on stage. So, you know, the... The rate at which you at which you teach has to be quite varied. Sometimes you've got to let them go, and at other times you've got to actually pounce on them at every single yeah. turn when something is wrong. Well, you celebrate twenty years this year at the Philharmonic uh, <laughs> Choirs, and they commiserate twenty years. <laughs> twenty year what, twenty year anniversary. That's is that ruby? What, what is that? I don't know. I've no idea. I think it should be claret. I think <laughs> it should be claret. I'm sure it's heading your way. Or, or Negroni. I think Negroni anniversary. I think could be very nice. Does it feel yeah. like 20 years? Uh, no, it doesn't. Because I still feel like I've got a lot to learn. I f- I don't feel like I've run out of ideas. Um, but also, I mean, I remember I had a beautiful mentor in in San Francisco who had the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And he used to say, it takes 10 years to build a good chorus. Um, I think it takes 
a lot longer to build a good conductor chorus master. Mm. Um, and I was only reflecting with my husband the other day. Um, I had a lot of incredible opportunities when I was a younger conductor, particularly with a lot of the symphony orchestras. And, you know, looking back now, sure, I had a certain amount of mut and youthful sort of vigour and stuff like that. But I was possibly given some of those opportunities a bit too early. Um, and I don't, looking back, I don't think I did them particularly well. I think I conduct orchestras a little bit better now. But I actually think after 20 years, I'm still only just learning how to really study properly. Um, so, I th- you know, for me, I can understand why ha- conductors hang around for a long period of time. It almost takes you that long, one, to learn the repertoire, two, to get good at doing the repertoire, three, repeat the repertoire enough for you to feel incredibly comfortable and like you're the person who does have the voice of authority in the room because actually when you're a young conductor most of the time the collective group has more knowledge of the piece than you do um, i'm lucky now at a stage where at least when i walk into you know qso which i did two or three weeks ago to do the nelson mass by Haydn, maybe i might just have a little bit more knowledge than they do about it and can impart something mm-hmm. who knows no doubt you have singers that have been there for that two decades. Yeah, we do. We do. Um, and that's extraordinary, actually. And that's that's probably the best thing about the job. You know, those singers who, one, they've stayed, so <laughs> you couldn't be doing too bad a job. But um, th- those are the people you've probably got the greatest sort of connection with because they've been there since, you know, you were there as a grimy little assistant chorus master. Um and they're very special to me, actually, the, those people who are there. And they're the ones that you feel that you could trust with, you know, you could go up to at the end of a rehearsal and say, I don't think I did that passage very well. And they'll turn around and go, no, you didn't really. <laughs> um, or something like that. So, yeah, it is extraordinary. Um, but even just with the concert that we're doing uh, next weekend or the weekend after that, no, next weekend, the Verdi Requiem, uh, that's dedicated to a singer who died recently and he'd sung in the organisation for 40 years. Wow. You know, we had a lovely man called Warwick, and I think he sang with the choir for, I, I could be wrong, I think 60 years. Like, he sang well into his 80s into the choir. And he was he had one of those voices where everything felt like it was very firmly placed in the schnorz. Um, so, you know, the, the resonance was still there well into his, you know, elder years. Um, so it's Verdi's Requiem. Uh, when I arrived tonight at your home, you were at the keyboard. Yes. Playing. I assume that was the Requiem. Yeah, it's there. slow practice of string parts to make yeah. sure that I you know, can hear every error when it happens. So how, <laughs> how long does it take you to prepare a piece? Look, the Verdi was great, actually, yeah. because um, I've recently prepared it for Christchurch um, in New Zealand. That was just last year. Uh, it's a piece that I've been conducting for a while, um, I, I actually conducted it for the first time two days after my dad died. So it sort of has a bit of a you know, yeah. special spot in my heart. And actually, you know, that was, that was an interesting performance because I could actually take all, all of my, the, my anger out um, through the music. Now I'm a bit more temperate uh, with it, I, I would think. But that one, again, I feel I know the piece quite well and I've prepared it a lot. So it is really just sort of touching base with all the orchestral parts again and the solos parts. So that's only taken, oh, you know, I've, I've sat down seriously with the score for maybe 20 or so hours. But, you know, Mahler 8 that we're doing, again, I've prepared that for Ashkenazi, I've prepared it for the proms and, and various other places. But that is taking me an awfully long time uh, to feel confident that I can stand in front of an orchestra and know what I'm doing. 
Uh, and I've been looking at that on and off, I'd say, for a better part of six months. But within that six months, I've had several other performances as well where you've got to you know look at that but um you know sitting at the piano playing all the parts from the full score singing all the parts all that sort of stuff just makes you feel much more confident um when you stand in front of an orchestra and it's interesting because i've been recently reading a lot more about sports psychology and things like that and really for most classical well, most musicians and most actors i'm sure preparation is a thing if you want to avoid performance anxiety preparation is it you know and that's the only time you really get nervous is when when you know you haven't prepared enough for a performance well that sort of uh, connects to my next question about is it daunting facing an orchestra that you don't know yeah yes and no actually I mean you know an orchestra that you do know they're more likely to turn around and tell you off Uh, but an orchestra you don't know again the thing about orchestras is they're one of the most interesting microcosms of society on the planet Um, you've got you know a group of people who see each other day in day out they're extremely good at what they do like for a violinist to get even a job in a B-grade symphony orchestra of which there virtually aren't any in the world these days anyway they're all of such high quality but to get that, they've done, they would have played through school. They would have done at least four or five or six years of an undergraduate. They've probably done a postgraduate. They've probably bummed around doing odd jobs as violinists in scratch orchestras and recording studios before they even land a job in an orchestra. Um, and then they're there for life, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. And there's not, once you're you know, rank and file, first or second violinist, with the exception of moving up the ranks to become the concert master or mistress um you know there's it's not like we're talking about you'll eventually move to the top of the company or something like that um so that's string players let alone woodwind players who are all soloists in their own right you know and play with it so i mean but somehow they all play together and you know i totally agree with um i think it was um sir charlie uh, charlie um sir charles mccarris who um said the only evidence he's ever seen of, you know, um, not osmosis, but, you know, um, telepathy is an orchestra. None of us understand how that works. You know, you put the beat down, you breathe with the players, you show them where the music's going and things like that. But it's still miraculous every time we get a chord that's absolutely perfectly together. That's, That's an extraordinary thing, actually, that level of entrainment and precision. Yeah, as an audience member, you look at it, and it is this large mass of people who, a big unit who somehow mm. make this, this noise. But yeah. of course, it's made up of, of, of many individuals. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, um, I hesitate to reference another TV show, but Mozart in the Jungle, which, yeah. which did that beautifully with, with looking at the individuals that make up a exactly. chorus. You find exactly. all types. Well, I'm afraid I only got halfway through the first episode. Did you? I did. <laughs> what you thought? <laughs> I did. I did. I did. Do this. It didn't really reflect my world, I have to say, Peter. Well, that's using why this I'm voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I avoided Glee. I've never watched yeah, it. Yeah, you see, Glee. I quite liked Glee. All right. I, oh, there you go. Um, it, actually, the funny thing about Glee, around that time, we were doing a lot of um, public sort of, you know, come and sing type things. So it was great for repertoire. Right. Which was good. So, oh, good, anyway. good, good. That's yeah, so another I, I suppose all those charts are available for choir. They are. So, they yeah. are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what were the um, artistic influences in, in your life? Did... Um, we a musical household? No, not a musical no. household at all. Um, we had one classical album by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which had a red label. Um, and when you opened it up, it was a picture of the orchestra. And like all 
like all children, we put on shows and we, you know, I conducted that orchestra and, you know, I saw Amadeus and then was convinced I was Mozart. Um, I think when I saw Cats, I was convinced I was a cat as well, but that's another story. <laughs> Which um, cat? Oh, who would I be? Who Gus, would I be? The, Gus the theatre cat. Oh, Gus the theatre cat. I was all awfully fond of him. The, the theatre cat, yes. Asparagus, that's right. Yes, that's, that's what right. he was called. I think we had a cat called Asparagus at one stage as well. Um, we did have a cat called Roxy after Roxy Hart oh, in Chicago. There you go. Roxy. I thought that there might have been go. the name of your home. No, 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 no. This is Gladys. Right. This is Gladys. But anyway, that's another story. Um, so no real sort of influences, you know, growing up within the family. Apparently my great-grandmother on my dad's side was a concert pianist, but that didn't really sort of transfer necessarily. I was just very lucky that I went to an extremely sort of musically rich primary school, which was Neutral Bay Public School. And again, I don't remember having any sort of extra musical lessons or anything while I was there. We were all sh- given a recorder to shove in our mouth, unfortunately, for our teachers um, at some point. But from that, I learned how to read music, yeah. breath control, all sorts of things, like exposed to handle, bark, you know, all sorts of things. Um, doing that, I played all four rec- recorders, so I learned to read bass clef. Um, doing that and this is a really basic music education we're talking about when I went to high school which was Crowsness Boys High School which was not a particularly glamorous high school uh, on the North Shore uh, I had an extremely dedicated and gifted music teacher who saw just an inkling of interest from me and she was the person who you know tried to get a violin under my chin didn't work I did play the cello for a very small period of time but Oddly enough, it was a technical college at one stage, so it had a room full of instruments. And it was one of those places where oh, I just feel like taking a clarinet home tonight. And she'd go, hey, all right, take a clarinet home. And like, so I'm not saying I'm completely self-taught, but there were just things there. It was, a, it was a treasure chest, and one could take things home and do that. But I look, I was always just fascinated by pianos. You know, I was convinced that every house apart from ours had a piano in it. Um, and I think the first, you know, if we ever went to somebody's house, the first thing I'd do is, do they have a piano? Um, and I just gravitated towards the piano. Again, didn't really have a huge amount of formal training in the piano. Um, and so I'm a terrible hack sort of pianist. And I was a, I did do a small stint as the assistant chorus master at the opera company, which is largely playing the piano. Um, and that's when I realized my technical ability just wasn't exactly where I thought it was. Uh, but you know, that it was one of those things where nobody else was interested in doing it. And you know, one of the ways you get through high school is if you're good at something, you know, you sort of avoid bullying up to a point and, yeah. and things like that. I was vaguely okay at music. Um, and every opportunity was there. You know, we did big, you know, choral festivals in the Sydney Opera House. Uh, we'd put on concerts at the end of every term with Miss, Miss Rosa. Um, she'd invite me to the local Catholic church to play the organ. All these sorts of things. And so I just, I just sort of picked it up, you know, in many ways. But I always had, you know, a reasonably okay voice. So I got a job with the song company when I was still 19, I think. Yes, that was right. Um, I did the song company for two years. So I, I literally fell into it um, in many ways. So not, it was not a, you know long path of lots and lots of piano lessons after school and things like that by any stretch but obviously of embracing every opportunity absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. I mean you know hugely passionate and but what you know I spent all of my Sundays at Stanton Library listening to Handel oratorios and discovering things for myself and maybe that's maybe that's the thing there was there was just enough input from the only Rosa at um, 
process was high school who again was a gifted violinist in her own own right but it was enough of a spark to me just go i want to know everything i possibly can about this uh and you know the opportunities were there it worries me now that music is treated as such a added bonus and within what i understand even public schools um what we call public schools in this country uh you know if you want to do music you probably have to pay for it which i think is a real problem um so more and more we will find that the people going into into the industry are those who had possibly slightly you know richer in terms of money backgrounds yeah. who had access to it and i think that's a real problem um because we will end up with a very undiverse non-diverse indiverse um music industry just at a time when we actually want a hell of a lot more diversity yeah. within our classical music world were you were you accessing uh, popular music of the time growing up? I hated popular yeah. music. Yeah. My mother and father used to listen to Elvis yeah. and Barry. No, I was about to say Barry Crocker. That's not true. Yeah. Barry um, Manilow. No, Barry Manilow. Well, you see, you know, the writing was on the wall there, wasn't it? <laughs> um, no, I wasn't really into any of that. Um, it really was classical music. Like for some reason, I was just drawn to classical music. I loved Mozart. Uh, my brother listened to all the dance hits of the day and I just I thought it was the biggest din I could possibly imagine um, when I went to Sydney University um, Winston Evans who was largely a medieval you know and baroque uh, expert I suppose one of the first things we had to do was discover modal harmonies through a Beatles song so I discovered the Beatles only when I went to university which is a bit sad isn't it and I think I only discovered Elton John recently when I saw the Elton John film and went oh my god Elton John's music's oh, really what? good oh, I know it's fun. sad it's very sad Peter um but there it is you know um so you know, it was always classical music when did show tunes pop up was oh well I mean that's the thing um I re the first show that I saw was Cats. This is sad. Isn't oh, it? I'm sorry. I know, I know. It was very sad. And even to this day, da 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 da, da. It, it just rolls around in your head. Um, but I think it was just that thing of, again, I found it and then went, God, there's this thing called music theatre that exists. And I dragged my poor old mother along to company at the Sydney Theatre Company, thinking it was a show about a company, yeah. not knowing it was probably quite you know adult uh, <laughs> where you're going Barcelona um, and at that point that was probably enough um, there was a record store called Avon Susan's Absolutely. underneath the town hall yes. well I discovered that didn't I um, and so you know that became my largely my record collection and there was a great and this is the stuff I lament about Sydney now that it's become such an international somewhat bland city um, there was a terrific place called the record collector off Pitt Street, Pitt Street yeah. yeah, near where the City Recital Hall is now. Yeah. And I remember there was a delightful man in there who obviously could smell a bit of interest in me. Um, and I used to go in every weekend and he helped, he helped me essentially build a classical music library from Beethoven onwards, you know, and I'd, I'd have, what, $20 each week and I'd come home with six records which I'd listen to incessantly and things like that. So, you know... Um, do you yeah, still have a, a vinyl collection? Or no, no, rid no. Of this is a problem when you're when you're a student and you're yeah. bumming around in share households all the time. So I can't remember when I got rid of it. Yeah. Um, but CDs sort of took over. All the CDs are still up in the attic. So I've got to, you know, sort of trying to work out what to do with those because, of course, streaming now is amazing. Because um, it is I've, a problem, isn't it? I've got, well, I've got a huge collection as yeah. well. What do you do? I well, this is the problem though. You don't listen to music with 
the amount of attention that we used to. You no. used to put a CD on and you'd listen to that CD or, and vinyl even more so. Or if you bought hard. a record from Abram Susan, yes. you couldn't wait to get it home. Exactly. Something like a song. So home. I could perform it. And, <laughs> and yes, read, read the lyrics. Exactly. Well All of that sort of stuff. Whereas now we're, we're spoiled for choice. And I think, you know, as I was saying on a, on a Zoom, I think last night, somebody was asking, you know, do I recommend a recording of Marla 8? And I'm going... Well, not really, because there's so many out there. Just listen to as many as possible. Um, but I realised that, you know, when I first prepared Marla 8, I listened to one recording and one recording, and that was a Shulte yeah. recording, because um, that's the one that happened to be in my, my library. When I did Mozart Requiem for the first time, it was a Elliot Gardner recording, because that's the one that just happened to be in my CD collection. Um, so now, I mean, it's, it, and so actually back to your question of, do you listen to a lot of music? Probably not, because actually half the time it's a bit like Netflix, isn't it? You sit there going, I just don't know what to watch. Yeah. Don't know what to listen to. It's that well. Yeah. <laughs> so Marla 8 is, of course, part of the Philharmonia's uh, season mm-hmm. this year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Voice, energy, joy is mm-hmm. the, the tagline for, yep. for the season. Uh, Carmina Barana as well. Yep. Um, yep. And, and, a, and a healthy smattering of lesser-known pieces, which should be well-known, like the Macmillan Stub at Marta, which was written for the sixteen. Um, and James Macmillan is an extraordinary English composer. Um, and we've done his Miserere, we've done his Seven Last Words from the Cross. Um, and this is probably his most exciting work, the Stub at Marta, which actually, in a sense, is a companion piece to the Seven Last Words from the Cross. Um, and the chamber singers will be doing that. We're doing you know, a Pulitzer win- Prize-winning piece called Match Girl Passion by David Lang, who um, was a composer in residence for a long period of time with Bang on a Star, Bang on a Can All Star, which was a percussion group in New York. Um, and you know, so there's some other, you know, there's some more boutiquey sort of uh, programs in the mix as well. And that, I think that's the pleasure of programming each year is to find those blockbusters because we are the bastions of you know that. I mean, it's like Samson that we recently did. Well, probably it's been 20, 25 years since Sydney's heard Samson. I was in that the last one. production of Samson as a walk-on messenger. Um, not terribly good, apparently, according <laughs> to Graham Pushy. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We've got to balance that with these new works that are coming out as well and include, you know, after, I mean, you know, my, my executive director and I were just talking the other day. You know, I think the most important thing we do is create new music but at the same time, um, it's something we don't necessarily get a huge amount of funds to do. Um, we've got to always find the money to do it. But gosh, if you're not adding new music to it, who's going to, you know, it's a, it's a David Williamson line from Emerald City, isn't it? Yeah. You'll think that, you know, you, your life exists somewhere else in a different accent. Um, you know, it's terribly important to tell our own stories here. Mm-hmm. So that is Requiem is on Saturday the 20th of May. Is it? Yes. Great. Yes. I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get nervous? Um, Look, uh, it depends. Um, I had what I could only... Look, yes, of course I do. Um, But I had blinding fear last year, post-pandemic, when I realised her... What was it? It was the Coronation Anthems and the Nelson Mass. Excuse me for one minute. Ralph, stop. Good. Um, It was a performance last year where I I suddenly realised, oh my God. I haven't stood in front of an orchestra for nearly two and a half years. Um, do I, can I still do it? Well, can you still do it? Um, and how do you prepare and things like that? I mean, that 
that was quite frightening. At the moment, I'm having a great time because, you know, I'm more or less in front of an orchestra every couple of weeks. So you feel you're doing it all the time. But um, I don't really get nervous. There's always something in every piece that you are really, you, that you know is on a knife's, knife's edge. Yeah. And if you don't have that, I don't know, relaxed concentration to pull it off, if you get nervous, you know you're going to stuff it up. Um, if you're too relaxed about it, it'll just be fine. It won't be fine. Um, and that's what the musicians rely on. They, they rely on you to steer the car through the rocky bit of the terrain. Um, you know, we'll, we'll come with you, but you've got to get us through this t- dark corner, you know, up ahead. Um, so that's the, the, the bargain you sort of make with the devil as a, an orchestral. <laughs> so you've got your lantern in one arm and yes, you've got a mach- so. machete in the other. Pretty much, yes. Clearing the way. Let's go through this jungle together. So, so 350 singers in the chorus. Yep. Um, you've got a Latvian soprano. Yeah, yeah. It's the first time we've worked together and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and, you know, the, the thing about Betty Reckman is he was very specific about what he wants as well. And I think that's the thing with such a good cast of soloists again trying to get the dynamics because often Verdi's sung way too loud it's often sung way too slowly um so you know with a group of soloists who've all done it before and are top of their game you know we're really hoping to sort of let's really try and just do what's on the page let's see if we can do every accent and every penis yeah Maya Kovalevska and Diego Toro Mm. Deborah Humble and David Greco yeah Yeah. terrific cast just terrific cast well we'll talk as Brett for uh, is that it that's it that's that's gone very fast I haven't asked you any questions what was your first experience (laughs) of music Peter (laughs) my first experience of music Um, I think it was the recorder there you go yeah yeah Yeah. early primary school yeah I mean look you know much maligned instrument, but for a lot of us, it, it opened a doorway. It's like dim sims. When you're eating dim sims, it's it nothing really? like Are it. Are you sure? If, <laughs> if you're not eating dim sims, they stink to high heaven. Right. It's the same with the recorder. When you're playing it, I mean, you, you could be Louis Armstrong, um, but if you're not playing it and you have to listen to a recorder, oh my God. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Brilliant. you, Brett. Thank you, you right. so much, Peter. It's been a delight. Brett Waymark conducts Verdi's Requiem on Saturday, May 20th in the Concert Hall at the Sydney Opera House. The performance features Sydney Philharmonia choirs and soloists Maya Kovalevska, Deborah Humble, Diego Torre and David Greco. Thank you, Brett, for today's stimulating conversation and chukas for the Requiem. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe and I'll catch you next time on Stages. Oh,